Kant was very deeply convinced that there is such a thing as moral action. Moral action means that a man chooses or can choose to do right as opposed to wrong, to put in very simple terms. And that there was no merit in choosing what was right unless there was a possibility of choosing what was wrong. And if man was totally determined, not only by external factors, biological or physical, but also by what might be called internal factors, psychological, for example, his desires, his wishes, his inclinations, then, according to Kant, he was a mere turnspit, as he called him. He was like a clock, which, of course, moves in a perfectly regular fashion, but not determined by itself, but determined by some mechanism over which it has no control. What he was really opposed to was Spinoza's idea that a stone, which is flung by somebody, if you ask it why it is flying where it is flying, supposing it were conscious of what it was doing, might answer that it was doing so because it wanted to. But in fact, it can't help it. It's really the thrower who determines its direction. For Kant, this cancelled morality altogether. He thought that this was true of the physical world, but if it was true of the moral world, then goodbye to morals. For him, morality consisted in the power of choice. This does raise the very interesting question, doesn't it, when you deal with uh, those who are considered to be criminally insane. That is, they are mad, bad, uh, and therefore curable. And those people who are just bad, who are just criminals, and are seen to be responsible for their actions, and therefore are punished for those actions. I don't know whether it's, if you're considered to be totally incurable, then of course you are more or less regarded as a kind of medical object whether you were put in jail or in hospital, I think that isn't quite perhaps the division which one ought to draw. The division is between people who think who, whose acts are supposed to be caused by environment, by bad education, by other factors which can be adjusted by a kindly and wise psychologist or sociologist, as, as it were, and acts which are regarded as, in some sense, free for which the man is responsible. And the whole notion of responsibility is at stake. Kant, whom I mentioned already, took a very extreme position about this. He thought that punishment was fundamentally retributive, which is now regarded as the most brutal and irrational position by many liberal-minded and progressive thinkers. He thought that because he thought that the idea that punishment is corrective, or the idea that punishment is educational in character and alters your character, is insulting to the man himself. In some sense, the uh, corrector the psychologist, is regarded as a man who knows what is good for the man, which he himself does not. And therefore he's being treated like a sick man or a child. This may be required in some cases where you are dealing with children. There's ungrown-up people who are not fully aware of the facts, who are in some way not adult, or perhaps people who are really aberrant, that's to say, who are psychologically in some way, as we would say, pathological or abnormal. But to regard all human beings as being in that condition appears to him to deny what he regards as the most human of all human attributes, which is the power of free choice. And he says, in effect, that generosity, for example, and paternalism, even used for the most noble purposes, can be an insult to man, can be a form, terrible form of tyranny, that indifference, um, even hostility, recognizes the equality of the person towards whom you are hostile or about whom you are indifferent more deeply than the attempt to condition him, to mold him, to do something to him, um, which he's regarded as incapable of doing himself. I mean, I've known people who've committed antisocial acts who are quite clear about the fact that they'd rather go to prison than to hospital. 
to go to prison means that they, at least they know there is a punishment attached and they've done it all the same. They know perfectly well that society is against it. They may be agree with the laws of society and defy them openly, or they may disagree with them and think the laws are immoral or wicked. But at least they know what they're doing. They do things with their eyes open. As opposed to being sent to hospital, the implication of which is that they are in some way psychologically feebler, inferior to, understand the world less well than the people who are in charge of them. This be true of the homosexuals particularly. Yeah. Oh, yes, and while there were anti-homosexual laws in England, certainly some homosexuals I've met were proud people who said they knew what they were doing and they would rather be punished than treated as pathological cases. How often do you think that this argument about human nature, that is a collection of people, sit down and decide this is human nature, this is what we can expect from man. On the side you have what is natural for man and you have what is unnatural. So to be a homosexual, to come under the heading of any other number of aberrations, you are unnatural and therefore to be cured, to be coerced into naturalness. Well, of course, I mean, one must begin by saying that some very dogmatic and some very crude views of human nature have been held and have done a great deal of damage. If you thought uh, diabolical possession was very important, uh, as you did in the Middle Ages, then when people behaved in perhaps hysterical fashion, they were beaten. They were beaten and they were maltreated in order to drive the devils out of them. It took some time for people to realize that perhaps the causes of such behavior, whatever they might be, were not supernatural in character, and therefore that the treatment advocated by religious persons uh, were uh, mere cruelty. But at the same time, I have to say, all moral theories and all political theory rests on some view of human nature. In the end, it boils down to that. When you compare this morality to that morality, this moral philosopher to that moral philosopher, or this society to that society, if you research sufficiently, scrupulously and deeply, you will find that there is some concept of human nature which underlies it. And there have been several concepts which have clashed with each other. For example, in the ancient world and in the medieval world, the Judeo-Christian world, so to speak, and indeed in the ancient Greek world too, it was assumed that all things had purposes. Inanimate objects, animate objects, men, all had some kind of inbuilt purposes. If you were a theist, you believed that God created you for a certain purpose. If you were not a theist, you talked of nature. Not necessarily creating, but being filled with objects with certain purposes. The great thing was to discover what is the purpose of a stone. The purpose of a stone is to gravitate downwards. For Aristotle, every object seeks its natural end. That's called teleology. If you think that everything has a proper purpose, then you say full realization of an object or a person is the attainment of that particular end. And that's what makes people happy. Why are people miserable? Because they don't understand their ends and they try and do something for which they're not adapted. I am a violin player and I try to play the flute. That's no good. I wish to construct a violin. I try and make it out of stone. It will not yield because I don't understand the purposes of stones, the purposes of violins or my own purpose as a player. And this, of course, is also the Christian idea of a kind of hierarchy which God is at the head and the Peps Amoeba, when it is discovered is below and there is a whole hierarchy, so to speak, of beings, each of which seeks to attain its own purpose and if they all attain their purposes, they're in harmony with each other. Disharmony arises when people wander away from their purpose through error, through blindness, through perversity of some sort, through misfortune sometimes, perhaps, and then they have to be put right, adjusted, put into a proper bracket, so to speak, and then it's all right. And people like Hume, who was highly empirical, still believed something not unlike that. He thought there was a nature, mistress nature, dame nature, which always came to one's aid when one was in some way distempered. Hobbes did not believe this on the whole. Uh, Spinoza didn't believe it. This was a great break. 
the idea that things don't have ends. The only people who have ends are men who make things for certain purposes. Clocks don't have ends. The, the end is imposed by me. Um, men don't have inbuilt ends. They simply seek what they seek. When they're rational, they seek rational ends, and if they're irrational, they seek irrational ends. If you understand what the world is like, you will see what is likely to compass your ends, what is likely to fulfill them, and what is likely to frustrate them. But it's a, there's a terrible, complete contrast between people who think that there are objective ends built into things and men, and people who say things are what they are. They're simply a mechanism. They just exist and are causally determined. And ends are things which human beings just conceive and can abandon. Where does freedom, though, where does, where does the sense that man is a self-actualizing entity? This is the Sartre argument, isn't it? Well, certainly it is. That, of course, is what Kant is in favour of. That's where it comes from. It comes from Kant and Fichte and these German philosophers, for the most part. Though there were people in the ancient world, Epicurus, I think, probably thought that we were free in some way. All determinist theories flow from the Stoics, and all libertarian theories flow from the Epicureans, historically speaking. You see, the Stoics are the first people who really saw the dilemma, the awful agony. They were the first people who, on the one hand, believed that there were certain things which people had to do. I don't say they called them duties, but things which were proper for men to do, and therefore they had to choose. On the other hand, they also believed in rigorous causality, and they didn't know how to get out of this. They were the first people to be in this bind. And I, one of them then says, well, we can solve it this way. We can say men are involved in this. They're not just pushed about by external causes. If a sphere rolls down an incline, the fact that it rolls down the incline is due not merely to the incline, but also to the fact that it is spherical. When men act in certain ways, it isn't only that they're being pushed by external causes, it is also they have a certain character. They're involved, their nature, they're involved in it. If they're involved in it, they're free. Kant rejected this absolutely, said this was a miserable subterfuge. Either you were determined or you were not. The fact that you were determined by your own nervous system or by your own emotions or by your own desires didn't make you any freer. Uh, but he and people like Sartre certainly suppose that this whole metaphysical notion of everything being rigorously determined, whether by empirical causality or by some kind of metaphysical structure, was simply something which human beings invented, at least for Sartre, in order to justify all kinds of acts which they fundamentally suppose not to be right. Also, it seems that it does justify the structure of society as well, doesn't it? Very nicely. If you have a hierarchy, a concept that everybody has their place, that human nature, uh, God or whatever it is, history, has determined that people will have a particular function, then you have your people at the top and your people in graduated classes down to the very bottom. Now, this does form a very good justification for injustice, inequalities, and things of this sort. Well, uh, perhaps for justice too in some cases, but the thing is that it's cosier that way. If you aren't fully responsible for your own acts, if you can say, I am as I am because my parents maltreated me, I am as I am because the nature of the universe is such, and it, then you put the responsibility on the back of the universe and shuffle it off your own. And this ultimately, people don't want to be all alone, the big lonely persons responsible for their own acts. They want some justification of what they do from the nature of something greater, more stable, in a way, grander than themselves. And if they can say, I fulfill the will of God, or I fulfill the will of history, or I fulfill the will of my class, or I understand myself to be a member of a certain economic stratum, let us say, which I didn't choose, but uh, with which I am deeply bound up, which I cannot, in a sense, help and don't want to help, because that's what I am. In, in this sense, that really, the sociologists are right to a degree, aren't they, that in fact, many of the ideas, and probably the majority of our ideas, 
are formed to justify, to rationalise the functions which we have in society. That is, they're thrown up by society. They're not uniquely divined notions that an individual arrives at, but they are ideas which are formulated by the society in order that the individuals will be able to act, and that the ideas come, in a sense, after the action and don't precede it. Well, uh, there's obviously much truth in this, and not, I don't think it's unconsciously. I don't think this justifying activity is done by a lot of unscrupulous knaves who simply throw dust in people's eyes in order to make them do what they want them to do, although Voltaire thought something like that. I dare say there have been cases of that. But broadly speaking, what one can say is ideas are not born in the void. Ideas are not born of ideas. There's no pathogenesis among ideas. Ideas are, to a large extent, the products of the social process. I'd be the last person to deny that. Take, for example, nationalism, which is one of the most rampant ideas at present in the world. Yes, who can deny? Well, this is, to a high degree, the product, for example, of, I suppose, humiliation on the part of the weak by the strong, which ultimately leads to a backlash, which ultimately leads to a kind of what Schiller and other people have called the bent twig theory. If you bend the twig too far, it lashes back. Well, I don't think they're conscious of that. I think if you talk about nationalists, they don't say, we've been humiliated, we've been pushed aside, we've not been given our place in the sun, and that's why we feel so resentful. We are poor and we hate the rich because we're poor. We have been weak, and that's why we hate the strong, because we're weak. They just feel these emotions, which are undoubtedly caused in them by some kind of socio-psychological process. In a sense, then, we are determined. To a large degree. To begin with, of course, let us admit one thing. A lot of things which were regarded as free in the past are now seen to be conditioned by external circumstances, and we've become, in that sense, more enlightened, and if you like, more forgiving, in an anti-Kantian sort of way. P people were blamed for doing all kinds of things which can now be seen they probably can't help because of bad education or because of terrible social pressures. But is there a danger of swinging in the other direction too far? Yes. Yes, I would say, the, um, I would say there was. I would say there was. Nevertheless, if you exaggerate this and make it absolutely total, then uh, you have a picture of totally moldable, malleable men who can be turned into almost anything, which is rather what the 18th century French philosophers believed. And that really does deny any meaning to a very large number of moral terms, which we would then have to shed. We'd have to transform our concepts and, and language in very drastic ways to meet that. Take, for example, the phrase, serve him right. For Someone like Skinner, this is a meaningless phrase. What does it mean, serve him right? Uh, a man digs a hole for his enemy to fall into and falls into it himself. People feel some satisfaction about this and say, serve him right. Very, quite right. Poetic justice. Here is a villain who means nothing but harm to a lot of people, and one of the traps which he sets for other people actually catches him. Why do we feel satisfaction at this? Not just at the fact that a bad man has been eliminated. We feel he deserves punishment. The idea of desert is a very obscure idea. If you begin talking about desert, I think you must somewhat abandon the idea of, of complete determination. Desert means you could have acted otherwise, in which case you would have been all right. But you chose freely to do this, and that's why you don't deserve to be treated in this or that way. Desert implies the possibility of free choice as a central factor, as a central element in human experience. Action as something which is not fully determined. The problem, though, is that if you have a concept of our being determined, that is the Skinner argument, that is, in fact, we can know that some all-knowing, omniscient uh, psychiatrist or, or behavioural therapist can sort of have us taped, that in a way we are 
undermined. That if, if society can say, yes, we can help you, we can cure you of all the problems, there is that sense in which you undermine the important ingredient out of which freedom seems to arise, and that is autonomy. Now, the question is, in the general notion of human nature, and also in our social institutions, do you think that this concept of autonomy is being lost? Well, in totalitarian and authoritarian societies, of course. Uh, this is really, in a way, stimulated by all the, I don't say stimulated by these doctrines, but the doctrines are symptomatic of an attitude that men are malleable, wholly malleable, that they are made as they are by certain external factors, but that I can interfere with these factors by substituting my own factors, and that I can really turn a human being into practically anything I choose within certain limits. And this, of course, gives enormous power to the conditioners and entails a, a high degree of not only malleability, but makes it possible for people to uh, become victims of, no doubt, ill-intentioned or mad or power-seeking or other uh, power-loving and power-using persons. That's what, of course, what Kant protested against. He thought paternalism was a terrible tyranny, even where the paternalist ruler or conditioner is very benevolent, because the implication is, you don't understand yourself. I, the psychiatrist, do. I understand both myself and you. You understand neither yourself nor me. You resist because you don't understand. I must therefore somehow break your resistance. I'm kindly, and I don't propose to do this by brutal means, but I shall do it all the same. I know what is good for you, and you do not. Uh, I shall therefore make you happy, whether you want to be happy or not, in the only way in which people can be made happy, which I happen to know, because I've studied the subject, and I know all the factors involved. When you are happy, when I've finished with you, you will retrospectively be grateful to me for having done to you what at the time you resisted. Now, in the case of children, we do do that a little bit. I mean, we send children to school, although they may, of course, resist, because we say they must be taught to be adult. They must be able to cope with the universe. They won't unless I do. And when they've grown up, they will see that I acted rightly. But to treat large populations as if they were childish, as if they were um, unadult, that is, of course, the case against imperialism. A large number of imperialists were benevolently motivated. They thought, here were these poor natives, here are we, civilized people, we can't listen to what they want. What they want is neither here nor there. It's what we know is good for them. Never mind what they think. This does open the doors to the most fearful tyranny, not less tyrannous, because sometimes it's used by people full of goodwill and full of Skinnerian conviction. To sum up, then, how do you think that notions like there being a human nature, how do you think these have formulated the ide ideologies of our time? Uh, uh, let me make it absolutely plain. I think that rational, scientific attitudes are entirely good. That the more we know, the better. That the only way in which we can lead sane and happy, and if you like, moral lives, is by understanding ourselves as well as possible. Anything which makes for self-understanding is a good thing. But, of course, you can not only misinterpret, you can use scientific data for purposes which some of us would disapprove of. Darwin never preached social Darwinism. Darwin merely formulated a theory according to which certain species survived and certain species didn't, in accordance with certain natural laws. To apply that to human competition and say, devil take the hindmost, the only people who are worth saving are the toughest, the cleverest, and the most ruthless, because they are the fittest, is a misapplication of a, what was a perfectly good biological theory which didn't dictate any particular specific form of behavior. You might say, even if you were Darwin, there are certain forms of life which do not make for survival, but which nevertheless we value. Saintliness, benevolence, disinterestedness, uh, 
all kinds of extreme purity of heart may expose the people who have it to being crushed and eliminated by the strong, the wicked, and the ruthless. Nevertheless, we wish to support these people so long as it is possible to do so. We wish to organize a society which will uh, prevent the pike from eating the carp. In nature, pike do eat carp, but we will create artificial conditions in which the carp will survive because we're pro-carp. Uh, anyhow, because we think the rights of carp are as good as the rights of pike, and the strong mustn't eat up the weak. This is not incompatible with anything which we regard as being a, a law of biological survival. The whole doctrine of Huxley, for example, who talked about nature being red in tooth and claw, is we must resist nature and not cooperate with her. That he wanted to deny that nature was benevolent and meant well. He wanted to say nature was a cold, ruthless, cruel affair, so to speak, which is not interested in individuals. It has no moral content at all. This is what goes on in the world, but... To be a human being is to have certain moral ideals, in which case we must resist natural processes in the way in which lions and tigers can't. And therefore, what you call ideology, I think, can be made independent of scientific findings, although scientific findings furnish the evidence of what you want to do. Goals are not provided by science. Last time I said that I would speak today about the attack delivered on the ideal of the Enlightenment, at any rate, the beginning of it. I think it would be only fair to tell you what the general program of these lectures is to be. I shall today discuss the first onslaught upon the Enlightenment. Next time I propose to continue with that, and in particular to deal with the attitudes and the ideas and the effects of the ideas of Rousseau, Kant, and Schiller. In the fourth lecture, I propose to deal with the rise, the real full blast effect of Romanticism, both upon the arts and upon literature and on thought and life. In the fifth lecture, I propose to deal with the specific results of it in the early 19th century, and in particular in France. And in the last lecture, I propose to try and draw a summary of all that I've said and consider what parts of it are alive and what parts of it are dead for us now, and what effect it has had, is having, and even perhaps is likely to have upon our own lives. Let me therefore go back to the subject of which I spoke. The Enlightenment of the late 17th and early 18th century needs some definition. There are certain propositions, if we like to boil them down to that, which are, as it were, the three legs upon which the whole Western tradition rested. These are not confined to the Enlightenment, although the Enlightenment gave a particular version, transformed them in a particular manner. These three principles are roughly these, that all genuine questions can be answered, that if a question cannot be answered, it is not a question. We may not know what the answer is, someone else will. We may be too weak or too stupid or too ignorant to be able to discover the answer for ourselves. In that case, the answer may perhaps be known to persons wiser than we, experts, and the elite of some sort. We may be sinful creatures and therefore incapable of ever arriving at the truth by ourselves. In that case, we shall not know it in this world, but perhaps will in the next. Or perhaps it was known in some golden age before the fall and the flood had rendered us as weak and as sinful as we are. Or perhaps the golden age is not in the past, but in the future, and we shall discover the truth then. If not here, there if not now, at some other time. But in principle, the answer must be known, if not to men, then at any rate, to an omniscient being, to God. If the answer is not knowable at all, 
if the answer is in some way is in principle shrouded from us, then there must be something wrong with the question. This is a proposition which is common both to Christian and to um, scholastic, to enlightenment and to positivist tradition of today. It is in fact the backbone of what might be called the main Western tradition. And it is this that Romanticism in a certain sense cracked. The second proposition is that all these answers are knowable. That is to say, they can be discovered by means which can be learnt and taught to other persons. So there are techniques by which it is possible to learn and to teach ways of discovering what the world consists of, what part we occupy in it, what our relation is to people, what our relation is to things, what true values are, and every other serious and answerable question. The third proposition is that all the answers must be compatible with one another. Because if they aren't compatible, then chaos will result. It is clear that the true answer to one question cannot be incompatible with a true answer to another question. It is a logical truth that one true proposition cannot contradict another. If all answers to all questions are to be put in the form of propositions, and if all true propositions are in principle discoverable, then it must follow that there is a description of an ideal universe, a utopia, if you like, which simply is that which is described by all true answers to all serious questions. And this utopia is something which, although we may, may not be able to attain to it, at any rate, is that ideal in terms of which we can measure off our own present imperfections. That is the general presupposition, if you like, of the rationalist Western tradition, whether Christian or pagan, whether theist or atheist. Now, the particular twist which the Enlightenment gave to it was to say that the answers were not to be obtained in many of the hitherto traditional ways. I needn't dwell on that, for it will be familiar to most people here. The answer is not to be obtained by revelation, for different men's revelations appear to contradict each other. Then it's not to be obtained by tradition, because tradition can be shown to be often misleading and false. It is not to be obtained by dogma. It is not to be obtained by individual self-inspection of men of a privileged type, because too many imposters have usurped this role and so forth. There is only one way of discovering these answers, and that is by the correct use of reason. Deductively, as in the mathematical sciences, inductively, as in the sciences of nature. That is the only way in which answers in general, true answers to serious questions, may be obtained. And there is no reason why these answers, which after all have produced triumphant results in the worlds of physics and chemistry, should not equally apply to the much more troubled fields of politics, ethics, and aesthetics. The general pattern, I wish to stress, of this notion is that life, in some sense, or nature, if you like, and when 17th and 18th century authors say nature, we can translate that into life perfectly easily. The word nature was as much a commonplace in the 18th century as the word creative is now, and had about as precise a meaning. <laughs> At any rate, the notion of life and of nature um, is that of a jigsaw puzzle. We lie among the, as it were, disjected fragments of this puzzle. There must be some means of putting these bits together. The all-wise man, the omniscient being, God, or an omniscient earthly creature, whichever way you like to conceive it, is in principle capable of fitting all the various bits together into one coherent pattern. Anyone who fits things into one coherent pattern will know what the world is like, what things are, what they have been, what they will be, what the laws are which govern it, what man is, what the relation of man is to things, and therefore what man needs, what he desires, and also how to obtain it. All questions, whether of a factual nature or what we call a normative nature, that is to say answers to questions, what should I do, 
and what ought I to do, or what would it be right or appropriate for me to do, all these questions are answerable by someone who is capable of fitting these bits of the jigsaw puzzle. It is, as it were, like a hunt for some kind of concealed treasure. The only difficulty is to find the path to the treasure. Upon this, of course, theorists have differed. But in the 18th century, there was a fairly wide consensus that what Newton had achieved in the region of physics could surely also be applied to the region of ethics and of politics. The regions of ethics and of politics presented a rare disorder. It was perfectly clear, I mean, then as now, that people didn't know what the answers to these questions were. How should one live? Were republics preferable to monarchies? Was it right to seek pleasure or to do one's duty, or could they be reconciled? Um, was it right to be ascetic, or was it right to be a voluptuary? Was it proper to obey elites of specialists who knew the truth, or was it the case that every man had a right to his own particular opinion as to what to do, and was a major majority opinion of necessity to be taken as the correct answer to political life? Was the good something which was intuited as an external property, as something which is out there, eternal, objective, true for all men in all circumstances everywhere, or was the good only something which a particular person in a particular situation happened to like or happened to be inclined towards? These questions were then, as now, of a puzzling nature. It was quite natural that people should say, here was Newton who had found physics in a very similar state, with a great many crisscrossing hypotheses founded upon a great deal of classical and scholastic error. With a very few masterly strokes, he had managed to reduce this enormous chaos to comparative order. From a very few clear physical mathematical propositions, he was able to deduce the position and the velocity of every particle in the universe, or if not to deduce them, to place weapons in people's hands with which they could, if they applied themselves, deduce them. Weapons which any intelligent man could, in principle, use for himself. Surely, if this kind of order could be instituted in the world of physics, the same methods produce equally splendid and lasting results in the worlds of morals, politics, aesthetics, and the rest of the chaotic world of human opinion, where people appear to struggle with each other and murder each other and destroy each other and humiliate each other in the name of incompatible principles. This appeared to be a perfectly reasonable hope, and it appeared to be a very worthy human ideal. At any rate, this is certainly the idea of the Enlightenment. Now, the Enlightenment was certainly not, as is sometimes maintained, a kind of uniform movement in which, of which all the members believed approximately the same things. For example, opinions about human nature differed very widely. Fontenelle and Saint-Evremont, um, Voltaire and La Métrie thought that man was hopelessly jealous, envious, wicked, corrupt and weak, and therefore needed the most strenuous possible discipline in order to keep his head just above water, so to speak. He needed, in other words, a rigid discipline for the purpose of making him capable of coping with life at all. Others, on the other hand, thought, on the contrary, didn't take quite so black a view, and thought that man was essentially a malleable substance, clay, which any competent educator, any enlightened legislator could mold into perfectly proper and rational shape. And there were, of course, a few persons like Rousseau and others who thought that man was naturally neither neutral nor wicked, but in fact good, and had only been ruined by institutions of his own making. And if these institutions could be altered or reformed in a very drastic way, man's natural goodness would burst forth and the reign of love could be once again created upon the earth. Again, some eminent doctrinaires of the Enlightenment believed in the immortality of the soul. Others believed that the notion of a soul was a hollow superstition and there was no such entity. Some believed in, for example, the elites, in the necessity of government by the wise, that the mob would never learn, 
that there was an inequality of gifts which was permanent among mankind. And unless men could somehow be trained to obey experts, as they obey experts in, for example, those techniques which clearly need them, such as, let us say, navigation or economics or whatever it may be, unless men could be induced to obey those who knew the elite of experts, life on earth would continue to be a jungle. Others, on the other hand, believed that in matters of ethics and of politics, every man was his own expert. That while not everyone could be a good mathematician, all men, by inspecting their own hearts, could know the difference between good and evil, right and wrong, and only didn't know it because they had been misled by knaves or fools in the past, by self-interested rulers, wicked soldiers, corrupt priests, and other enemies of man. And that if these persons could be eliminated or liquidated in some way, then every man could be placed in a situation where these clear answers could be discovered by every man, written in eternal letters, upon graven in eternal letters upon his own heart, as in fact Rousseau preached. And there were other disagreements as well, into which I needn't go. But what I think is common to them all is the view that virtue consists ultimately in knowledge. That if we know what we are, and we know what we need, and we know where to obtain it, and we obtain it by the best means in our possession, then we can live happy, virtuous, just, free, and contented lives. That all virtues are, in fact, compatible with one another. That it is impossible for it to be the case that the answer to the question, should one seek justice, is yes, and the answer to the question, should one seek mercy, is yes, and that these two answers should somehow prove incompatible. Equality, liberty, fraternity must be compatible with one another. So must mercy and justice. It is impossible, if a man were to say, that, for example, the truth could make someone miserable, this must somehow be demonstrated to be false. If it could be shown that in some way total liberty was incompatible with total equality, there must be some misunderstanding in the argument, and so on. This was a belief which I think all these men held. And above all, they held that these general propositions were obtainable by the dependable methods used by natural scientists in the establishing of the great triumph of the 18th century, namely the natural sciences. This, I think, qualifies them all. Now, before I go on to the, to the particular form of attack upon it, let me explain to you that this, of course, penetrates as much into the realm of the arts as it does into that of the sciences and that of ethics. Uh, for example, if you ask what was the dominant aesthetic theory of the early 18th century, the dominant aesthetic theory was that man should hold up the mirror to nature. Spoken like that, it seems a rather tedious platitude, in fact, a falsehood. To hold up a mirror to nature is merely to copy what is already there. These people, I don't think, meant that by this particular phrase. By nature, they meant life, and by life, they meant not what one saw, but that towards which they supposed life to strive, certain ideal forms towards which all life was tending. No doubt it was a clever thing on the part of the painter Zeuxis in Athens to paint birds so realistically, to paint, I'm sorry, grapes, so realistically that birds came to peck at them. It was very skillful on the part of Raphael to paint gold pieces so skillfully that the innkeeper thought them to be genuine and let him go without paying his account. But these were not the highest flights of human artistic genius. The highest flight of human artistic genius consisted in somehow visualizing that inner objective ideal towards which nature and man tended and somehow embodying this in a noble painting. That is to say, there is, there is some kind of universal pattern and this universal pattern 
the artist is able to incorporate in images as the philosopher or the scientist is capable of incorporating in propositions. Let me read to a very typical statement by Fontenelle, who was the most representative of all figures of the Enlightenment and led a very careful and very rational life which enabled him to live to the age of 100. He said, a work of politics, morals, criticism, possibly even of literature, will be finer, all things considered, if made by the hands of a geometer. That is because geometers are persons who understand the rational interrelationships of things. And anybody who understands the pattern which nature follows, because nature is surely a rational entity, otherwise man would not be able to conceive it or understand it at all, that was the argument. If anyone who can do that is surely able to elicit from the apparent chaos and confusion of nature those eternal principles, those necessary connections which bind together the eternal and objective elements out of which the, the world is composed. Monsieur Rapin in the 17th century said, Aristotle's poetics is only nature reduced to method, good sense reduced to principle. And Pope repeated that in famous lines, saying, those rules of old, discovered, not devised, are nature still, but nature methodized. <laughs> that is, roughly speaking, the official doctrine of the 18th century, namely that you discover the method in nature herself. Reynolds, who I suppose was the most representative aesthetic theorist, certainly in England of his period in the 18th century, said the painter corrects nature by herself, her imperfect state by her more perfect. He makes out an abstract idea of forms more perfect than any one in the original. This is the famous ideal beauty by which he says, by this Phidias acquired his immortal fame. Therefore, we must understand what it is that nature, what the ideal consists of. The ideal is there are certain persons, for example, who are more eminent than others. Alexander the Great is a more splendid figure than a lame or blind beggar, and therefore deserves more of the artist than the lame or blind beggar who is a mere accident of nature. Nature tends towards perfection. We know what perfection is by some inner sense which tells us what is norm and what is abnormal, what is the ideal and what is the deviation from this ideal. Therefore, says Reynolds with great firmness, if Alexander had happened to be of low stature, do not render him so. Bernini should never have let David bite his lower lip because that is a mean expression inappropriate to royal rank. If, if St. Paul was of mean appearance, as we are told, Raffaele was right not so to draw him. And Perrault, writing towards the end of the 18th century, says, it, it is a great pity that Homer allows his heroes to be too familiar with swineherds. <laughs> he doesn't, I suppose, doesn't wish to deny that perhaps Homer's heroes or persons whom he drew who his originals might have been as familiar with swineherds as in fact they're represented as being, but if so, they shouldn't have been. And the business of the painter is not simply realistically to reproduce what is there, that is what the Dutch too often do, and this merely populates the world with a number of copies of entities which originally had no need to be there. <laughs> the, 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 the purpose of painting is to convey to the questing intellect or the questing soul what it is that nature seeks after. Nature seeks after beauty and perfection. All these people believe that. It may not have attained to it, particularly man conspicuously had not attained to it. But by inspecting nature, we observe the general lines upon which it proceeds. We see what it is that she strives to produce. We know the difference between a stunted oak and a fully grown oak. We know when we call it stunted that it is an oak which has failed to become that which it was, as it were, intended by itself or by nature to be. In the same way, there are objective ideals of beauty, of grandeur, of magnificence, of wisdom, which it is the business of writers, philosophers, 
preachers, painters, sculptors, composers to, in some way, to convey to us. That is the general notion. Winkelmann, who I suppose is the most, the most original of all the um, aesthetic theorists of the century and who introduced this passionate, nostalgic taste for classical art, Winkelmann speaks about noble tranquility and calm restraint. Why noble tranquility? Why calm restraint? He doesn't, any more than anyone else, suppose that all the ancients were nobly tranquil or calmly restrained. But he does think that this is the ideal of what man should be. He does think that to be a Roman senator, to be a Greek orator, whatever it is that he regarded as uh, the perfection of man, what all the Germans in his time tended to think of as the most perfect men, were persons who tended towards this noblest of human ideals. And the sculptors who in this way immortalized these particular traits hold up before us the ideal of what man can be. And in this way, not only inspire us to imitate these ideals, but reveal to us the inner purposes of nature, reveal to us reality. Reality, life, nature, ideal, these things are identical for these particular thinkers. Just as mathematics deals in perfect circles, so the sculptor and the painter must deal in ideal forms. This, I think, is the rational, the rationalist notion of most 18th century aesthetics. That is why there is a comparative neglect of history. Although it's true that Voltaire was the first person who began to write history no longer of individual kings and conquerors and captains and adventurers, but took an interest in people's morals, their clothes, their habits, their judicial institutions. Although some interest in what might be called the general history of people's manners, as well as individual conquests or treaties, had got going in the 18th century, nevertheless, there is no doubt that when Bolingbroke said that history was nothing but philosophy teaching by examples, he was voicing a very common view. Voltaire's interest in history was to show how men were much the same in most ages and how the same causes produced the same effects. And the purpose of that was to show sociologically what we were like, what kind of ends men sought after, what kind of means did not bring them about, what kind of means did bring them about, and in this way to create some kind of science of how to live well. The same is true of Hume, who also spoke in much the same way. He said, most men in most circumstances obeying the same causes behave in roughly the same fashion. The purpose of history is not simply curiosity about what happened in the past, desire to revive something which occurred in the past simply because we feel passionately interested in what our ancestors were like, or because uh, we wish in some way to connect the past with ourselves to see what it was that we grew out of. That, I think, was not the principal spring of these men's interest. The principal spring was simply an accumulation of data upon which general propositions could be constructed telling one what to do, how to live, what to be. That is a most unhistorical possible attitude which can be taken towards history, and it is the fairly characteristic attitude of the 18th century, including great historians who, despite themselves, wrote great history like Gibbon, whose ideals were a great, great deal inferior to his actual performance. Now, these being the general notions of the, of the Enlightenment, you can see that in the case of the arts, it would lead, so to speak, to the formal, the noble, the symmetrical, the proportional, the judicious. There were, of course, uh, exceptions to this. I don't say that everybody believed exactly the same thing. This is very uncommon in any age. Even in France, even in classical France, there were all kinds of quietists and convulsionists, persons of a hysterical or ecstatic temperament. There were people like Vauvenard who said, who complained bitterly about the appalling emptiness of life. There was Madame de la Popelinière who said she wished to throw herself out of the window because she felt that life had no meaning and no purpose. But these were, comparatively speaking, a minority. Broadly speaking, it could be said that it was Voltaire and his friends, people like Helvetius, people to, to a certain extent like, like Fontenelle, who represented what might be called the major position of the age. And this was 
that we were progressing, we were discovering, we were destroying ancient prejudice, superstition, ignorance and cruelty, and we were well on the way towards establishing some kind of science which would make people happy, free, virtuous and just. It was really this that was attacked by the persons I'm about to discuss next. Now, certain cracks in what might be called this rather smooth wall, rather smug and smooth wall in some ways, had already proceeded from the Enlightenment itself. For example, Montesquieu, who was a very typical representative of the Enlightenment, had suggested that men were not the same everywhere. And this proposition, which had already been uttered by a good many Greek sophists, but had been forgotten, I think, intermediately, uh, in a certain sense, did make a sort of dent in the general picture, though not a very deep one. His point was that if you were a Persian and brought up in the Persian conditions, you might not want what you would want if you were a Parisian and brought up in Paris. That men were not made happy by the same things. That the attempt to foist upon the Chinese things which delighted the French, or upon the French things which delighted the Chinese would cause misery in both places. And that therefore one had to be very careful in altering laws, in reforming, in generally speaking, looking after people, if one was a statesman or a politician, or even in personal relations, in friendship, in family life, to consider very carefully what are the actual needs, what is the process of growth, what, is the particular, what are the conditions in which a specific body of persons grew up. He attached enormous importance to soil, climate, and political institutions. Others attached importance to other factors. But whichever way you look at it, the general notion was that of a general relativism, that what did for people in Birmingham would not do for people in Bokhara, roughly speaking. Now, uh, in a sense, of course, this did contradict the proposition that there were certain objective, uniform, eternal, fixed entities, for example, certain forms of uh, pleasure, which pleased everyone everywhere, that there were certain true propositions which all men at all times could have discovered for themselves, but only failed to do because they were too stupid or placed in unfortunate circumstances, that there is a form of life which, once it is introduced into the universe, could be made there, could be, as it were, fixed as eternal, would not need to be altered because it was perfect, because it satisfied the permanent interests and desires of men. It did contradict that, but it didn't contradict it very sharply. All it said was that all men, in fact, sought the same thing, namely happiness, contentment, harmony, justice, liberty, none of this he denied. But different circumstances made different means of attaining it necessary. This was a very sensible remark and didn't, in principle, contradict the foundations of the Enlightenment. He did make an observation which did shock people. He said, when Montezuma said to Cortes that the Christian religion was all very well for Spain, but that the Aztec religion might be best for his people, what he said was not absurd. This, of course, did shock both parties. It shocked the Roman church and it shocked the left wing. It shocked the Roman church for obvious reasons. It shocked the left wing because they too knew that the, since the Catholic, what the Catholic church said was false, the opposite was true. Since what the Aztec religion said was false, the opposite was true. And therefore the notion that propositions which might not themselves appear true to us yet might do for some other culture, that in fact one ought to estimate the value of religious truths not in accordance with some objective standard of truth, but some much more flexible or pragmatic means, namely whether it made the people who believed in them happy, suited their way of life, developed certain ideals among them, fitted into their general texture of their life and their experience, that did appear to both sides, both the Roman church and the atheistical materialists as being in some sense a betrayal. Nevertheless, this is, roughly speaking, the kind of criticism which Montesquieu brought. And, as I say, it modified the picture somewhat. 
he did modify the proposition that the word eternal truths, eternal institutions, eternal values, suitable for everyone everywhere. You had to be more flexible. You had to say, well, not eternal, perhaps, not everywhere. Most people in most places with due adjustment made for time and place. But if we did that, you could still preserve the foundations of the views of the Enlightenment. A somewhat deeper breach was made by Hume. Uh, in his very intelligent, interesting, amusing, and remarkable book, The Heavenly City of the 18th Century Philosophers, the late Professor Becker thinks that Hume really blew up the entire Enlightenment position by showing that the uh, necessities in which the, these philosophers believed, that the network of rigorous logical relationships out of which the universe consisted and which reason could grasp and live by, that this was not true, and therefore he somehow undermined the general notion of a kind of seamless garment or harmony of necessary connections. I don't agree with him about this, but I don't wish to go into this in detail here. Hume's chief service in the attack on the Enlightenment consisted, and it was, he certainly didn't appear to himself to be doing this, consisted in doubting whether two propositions, one, whether the causal relationship was something which we directly perceived or indeed knew to exist at all. He said that so far from things being necessitated by other things, they just followed along in a regular manner without being necessitated. Instead of saying causes must produce effects, or this event must produce that event, or this situation cannot help arising from that situation, all you needed to say was, usually the situation follows this situation. Normally this thing is to be found before or at the same time as or after that thing. So that for factual purposes, it didn't make a great deal of difference. The second proposition, more important for our purposes, is that when he asked himself how he knew that there was an external world at all, he said he couldn't deduce it logically. There was no way of demonstrating that tables existed. There was no way of demonstrating that at this moment, said Hume, I am eating an egg or I am drinking a glass of water. Demonstrating, no, I can demonstrate things in geometry. I can demonstrate things in arithmetic. I can demonstrate things in logic. I might, I suppose, be able to demonstrate things in heraldry or chess or other sciences which follow from artificial rules conventionally established. But I can't prove with mathematical certainty that anything exists. All I can say is that if I ignore it, I shall rue it. If I, if, if I suppose that there is no table in front of me and walk into it, I shall probably suffer discomfort. But demonstrated in the, in the sense in which I can demonstrate mathematical propositions, demonstrated in the sense in which I can demonstrate a proposition in logic where the opposite is not merely false, but meaningless, that I cannot do. And therefore, I must accept the world on belief, on trust. Belief is not the same as deductive certainty. Indeed, deduction doesn't apply to matters of fact at all. Well, without going into the vast consequences which this had in the general history of logic and of philosophy, it clearly did weaken the general position according to which the universe was a rational whole, each part of which was as it was necessarily because it was necessitated by the other parts of it, and the whole thing was made beautiful and rational by the fact that none of the things in it could be otherwise than as they were. The old belief was that whatever was true was necessarily true, that things could not be otherwise than as they were. And that is why, said Spinoza and people who thought like him, when I understand that things are inevitable, I accept them much more willingly. No man wants to believe that two plus two equals five. Anyone who says, two plus two has always equaled four, but this is a very suffocating truth. Cannot, could it not be the case occasionally that two plus two would be four and a half or 17? <laughs> Anyone who wanted to break out of this hideous prison 
of the multiplication table would be regarded on the whole as not quite sane. On the whole, we assume that the proposition that 2 plus 2 equals 4, or that um, if A is larger than B and B is larger than C, then it is probable that A is larger than C. These kind of propositions are propositions which we accept as being part of the general rational process of thought, part of what we mean by sanity, by rationality. If all facts in the universe could be reduced to this, then we would no longer kick against them. That is a great rationalist presupposition. If all the things which at present you hate and you fear could be so represented as to flow by necessarily logical chains from everything else that was, you would accept it as being not only inevitable, but reasonable and therefore delightful as much as 2 plus 2 equals 4 or any other logical truth upon which you found your life, upon which your thought rests. That is the ideal of rationalism. This Hume certainly broke. Now, let me now say that in spite of the fact that Montesquieu and Hume did make these faint dents in the particular theory of which I speak, one by showing that not everything was everywhere the same, the other by saying that there were no necessities, only probabilities, the difference that made was not very large. Hume certainly thought that the universe would proceed much as it did. He certainly thought that there were rational, irrational courses of action. He certainly thought that men could have made happy by rational means. He believed in science. He believed in reason. He believed in cool judgment. He believed in all the well-known propositions of the 18th century. He believed in art exactly as Reynolds believed in it, exactly as Dr. Johnson believed in it. The logical implications of his ideas didn't really become evident until the late 19th and 20th century. The attack of which I wish to speak came from a very different quarter. The attack of which I wish to speak came from the Germans. Now, the truth about the Germans in the 17th and 18th century is that they are a somewhat backward province. They don't wish to think of themselves in this light, but it remains true that they were. <laughs> in the 16th century, the Germans were as progressive and as dynamic and as generous contributors to European culture as anyone else. Certainly Dürer was as great a painter as any European painter of his time. Certainly Luther was as great a religious figure as anyone who had occurred in European history. But if you look at Germany in the 17th century, for whatever reason, and particularly the early 18th century, with the exception of the one great figure of Leibniz, who certainly is a philosopher of world scale, it is very difficult to see who among German thinkers or who among those Germans who affected so to speak, the thought or the, even, even to a certain degree the art of the world in any significant fashion, particularly towards the end of the 17th century, could be named. What the reason for this is, is rather difficult to say. I'm not a competent historian, and I therefore don't altogether, uh, I don't wish to volunteer too much. But it does seem as if, in, for some reason or other, the Germans failed to achieve centralized statehood as England and France and even Holland achieved it. They were governed in the 18th century and indeed in the 17th by 300 princes and 1,200 sub-princes. The emperor had interests in Italy and elsewhere which prevented him from paying due attention, perhaps, to his German lands. And above all, there was the violent dislocation of the Thirty Years' War in the course of which the troops of Louis XIV and of others destroyed and killed a very large section of the German population and crushed what might have been a cultural development simply in seas of blood. This was a misfortune of an unexampled kind in European history. Such a number of persons had never been killed for any reason before since the days of Genghis Khan. And the misfortune to Germany was crushing, and it crushed her spirit to a very high degree. With the result, for one reason or another, that German culture became provincialized, became disrupted into these tiny, stuffy provincial courts. There was no Paris, there was no center, there was no life, there was no pride, there was no sense 
of growth, dynamism, and power. German culture drifted into either extreme scholastic pedantry of a Lutheran kind, scholarship of a minute but rather dry kind, or else into a revolt against this scholarship in the direction of the inner life of the human soul. This was no doubt stimulated by Lutheranism as such, but particularly by the fact that there was a kind of huge national inferiority complex, which I think began at that period, vis-a-vis -vis the great progressive Western states, vis-a-vis -vis particularly the French. This brilliant, glittering state which had managed to crush and to humiliate them. This great country which dominated the sciences and the arts and all the provinces of human life with a kind of arrogance and success unexampled hitherto. And this did plant in Germany a permanent sense of sadness and humiliation, which may be discovered in the rather sad German literature, ballad literature and popular literature of the end of the 17th century, and even in the arts in which the Germans excelled, even in music, which tends to be domestic, religious, passionate, inward, and above all, different from the glittering court art and the splendid secular achievements of composers like Rambo and Couperin. There's no doubt that if you compare someone like Bach and his contemporaries and Telemann with French music of that period, even though Bach's genius is incomparably greater, the whole atmosphere, the whole tone, so to speak, of his music is much more confined to the particular I won't say provincialism, but at any rate, the sort of inner religious life of the city of Leipzig or wherever he might have happened to, to live, and was not intended to be an offering before um, the glittering courts of Europe or the general admiration of mankind in the way in which the paintings and the musical compositions of the English, the Dutch, the French, and the other leading nations of the world obviously were so intended. At any rate, that is what occurred, and the pietist movement of which I, about which I wish to say a few words, because it really is the root of Romanticism, the Pietist movement became deeply embedded in Germany. Pietism was a branch of Lutheranism, and it consisted in careful study of the Bible, profound respect for the personal relationship of man to God, therefore emphasis upon the spiritual life, contempt for learning, contempt for ritual and for form, contempt for pomp and ceremony, and a tremendous emphasis upon the individual relationship of the individual suffering human soul with her maker. Spener, Franke, Zinzendorf, Arnold, all these founders of the Pietist movement were men who in some way managed to bring comfort and salvation to a large collection of socially crushed and politically miserable human beings. So that in a certain sense, what occurred was a kind of retreat in depth. Let me tell you that it's all, it sometimes happens in human history, even though parallels may be dangerous, that when the natural road towards human fulfillment is in some way blocked, human beings retreat into themselves, become wrought up in themselves, and try and create inwardly that world which some evil fate has denied them externally. This is certainly what happened in ancient Greece when Alexander the Great began to destroy the city-states and the Stoics and Epicureans began to preach a morality of personal salvation, which took the form of saying that politics was unimportant, civil life was unimportant, all these great ideals held up by Pericles and by Demosthenes, by Plato and by Aristotle, were trivial and as nothing before the imperative need of personal individual salvation. This was really a very grand form of sour grapes. <laughs> if you cannot obtain if you cannot obtain that which, which, which you really desire from the world, you must teach yourself not to want it. If you cannot get what you want, you must teach yourself to want what you can get. This is a very 
frequent form of, so to speak, spiritual retreat in depth into a kind of inner citadel in which you try and lock yourself up against all the fearful ills of the world. The king of my province, the prince, confiscates my land. I don't want to own land. The prince doesn't wish to give me rank. Rank is trivial, unimportant. The king has robbed me of my possessions. Possessions are nothing. My children have died of malnutrition and disease. Earthly possessions, even children, love of children, is as nothing before love of God, and so forth. So that you gradually hedge yourself round by a kind of tight wall in which you seek to reduce the vulnerable surface. You want to be as little wounded as possible. Every kind of wound is being heaped upon you. And therefore, you wish to contract yourself into the smallest possible area so that as little of you as possible is exposed to wounds. This is, in a sense, the mood in which the German pietists operated. And the result of that was an intense inner life, a great deal of very moving and very interesting, but highly personal, violently emotional literature, hatred of the intellect, and above all, of course, violent hatred of France of wigs, of silk stockings, of salons, of corruption, of generals, of emperors, of all the great and, and, and magnificent figures of this world who are simply incarnations of wealth, wickedness, and the devil. This is a natural reaction, so to speak, on the part of a pious and humiliated population. And has happened since, since that day in other places as well. It's a particular form, so to speak, of anti-culture, anti-intellectualism, and xenophobia, to which the Germans were at that particular moment particularly prone. This is the provincialism which some of the German thinkers cherished and adored in the 18th century and against which Goethe and Schiller fought all their lives. Now, let me give you a typical quotation, I think, from Zinzendorf, who I suppose was the leader of the uh, Herrenhuter, which was a sort of section of the Moravian Brotherhood, who, which was a large section of the pietist population, of the pietist uh, group. He said, whoso wishes to grasp God with his intellect becomes an atheist. And this was simply an echo of Luther, who said, reason is a whore and must be avoided. Now, let me give you another, a social fact about these Germans, which I think is not altogether irrelevant. If you ask who were the Germans of the 18th century, who were the thinkers who most influenced Germany and whom, of whom we have heard, there is a rather peculiar sociological fact about them, which in a sense supports the thesis which I wish to put before you, which is that it's, the whole thing is a product of wounded national sensibility, and of dreadful national humiliation, the, whole of the, the roots of the Romantic movement, really, on the part of the Germans. If you ask who their thinkers were, you will find that in contrast to the French, they came from an entirely different social milieu. Lessing, Kant, Herder, Fichte were all very humbly born. Hegel, Schelling, Schiller, Hölderlin were lower middle class. Goethe was a rich bourgeois, but only attained to a proper title later. Only Kleist and Novalis were what would in those days be called country gentlemen. The only persons with any degree of aristocratic connection which could be said to take part in German literature, German life, German painting, any kind of German civilization whom I could discover were the two brothers, Counts, Counts Stolberg and the mystic Baron Eckartshausen. Not exactly first-class figures, not exactly figures of the front rank. <laughs> if, on the other hand, you think about the French of this period, of all the radicals, the left wing, the most extreme um, so to speak, opponents of orthodoxy, of the church, of the monarchy, of the status quo. All these persons came from a very, very different world. Montesquieu was a baron. Condillac was a count. Condorcet was a marquis. Mably was both an abbe and a count. Buffon became a count. Volney was well-born, and so was the baron Lambert. D'Alembert was the illegitimate son of a nobleman. 
Helvetius was not noble, but his father had been doctor to Madame, and he was a millionaire and a tax farmer and moved in court circles. Baron Grimm and Baron Holbach were two German barons who came to live in Paris from the Rhineland, one from the Rhineland, one from the Bohemia. There were a certain number of abbés. The Abbé Galliani was the uh, secretary at the Neapolitan embassy. The Abbé Morier and the Abbé Reynal were of good origin. Even Voltaire was, came from the minor gentry. Only Diderot, only Diderot and Rousseau were commoners, real commoners. Diderot really did come from the poor. And Rousseau was a Swiss, and that doesn't count in this particular uh, category. <laughs> and consequently, the, the, the point I wish to make is that these persons spoken with a different language. They were no doubt oppositional, but they were oppositional against persons who came from the same class as themselves. They went to salons, they glittered, they were persons of high polish, great education, and splendid prose style and generous and handsome outlook on life. And their mere existence irritated, humiliated, and infuriated the Germans. When Herder came to Paris in the early 70s, he was unable to get into contact with any of these men. It appeared to him that they were all artificial, highly mannered, extremely self-conscious, dry, soulless, little dancing masters in salons, who had no soul, who didn't understand the inner life of man, who didn't understand what the purposes of human beings were, who in some way were debarred by either bad doctrine or by false origin from understanding the true purposes of men on earth and the true potentialities, the true rich and generous potentialities which human beings had been endowed with God. This, in a certain sense, also created a chasm between the Germans and the French. So the mere thought of these frondeurs, mere thought of this opposition, even on the part of those who themselves hated the Church of Rome and themselves hated the King of France, um, the mere thought of these people filled them with nausea, disgust, humiliation, and inferiority. And this dug an enormous ditch between the Germans and the French, which not all the cultural interchanges which can be traced by scholars, in fact, were able to overcome. This, I think, is perhaps one of the roots of the German opposition to the French from which Romanticism began. Now, let me tell you a few words in the time left to me about the man who, in my view, was really the man who struck the most violent blow at the Enlightenment and began the whole romantic process, the whole process of revolt against a particular world which I've, to some extent, tried to draw. He's an obscure figure, but obscure figures sometimes create great consequences. Hitler, too, after all, was an obscure man during a certain portion of his life. Johann Georg Hamann was the son of very obscure parents. His father was, I think, a bathkeeper in the city of Königsberg. And he was brought up in East Prussia in a pietist environment. He was a nerd wheel. He wasn't able to get a job. He was, wrote a little poetry, wrote a little criticism. He did it quite well, but not well enough to secure a living. He was supported by his neighbor and friend, Immanuel Kant, who lived in the same city and with whom he quarreled for the rest of his life. And then he was sent by some rich Baltic merchants to London for the purpose of transacting a piece of business which he failed to complete, but instead drank, gambled, and got into heavy debt. As a result of these excesses, he was near suicide and then had a religious experience, read the Old Testament which his pietist parents and grandparents had sworn by, and suddenly was spiritually transformed, realized that the story of the Jews was the story of every man. That when he read the book of Ruth, or when he read the book of Job, or when he read about the tribulations of Abraham, God was directly speaking to his soul and telling him that there were certain spiritual events which had an infinite significance far different from anything which they might appear on the surface, which might appear on the surface. 
in this transformed religious condition, he came back to Königsberg and began to write. He wrote obscurely under many pseudonyms. He wrote in a style which has proved from this day to that unreadable. <laughs> At the same time, he had a very powerful and marked influence upon a number of other writers who in their turn had a considerable influence upon um, European life. He was admired by Herder, who certainly transformed the writing of history and transformed to some degree also um, the whole attitude towards the arts, which prevails today. He had an influence on Goethe, who wished to edit his works and who regarded him as one of the most gifted and profound spirits of his time and supported him against all possible rivals. He had an influence on Kierkegaard, who lived after he died, who said he was certainly the profoundest writer he had ever read, not intelligible even to him. <laughs> nevertheless, although he wrote obscurely, it is possible by dint of extreme attention, which I don't really commend to this particular audience, to collect certain grains of sense from the extraordinary contorted metaphors, euphuistic stylisms, allegories, and other forms of dark poetical speech with which Harman's fragmentary writings, he never finished anything, are written. And the doctrine which he enunciated was approximately this. He began with Hume, and he said, in effect, that Hume was right. That if you ask yourself how it is that you know the universe, you know the universe not by intellect, but by faith. If Hume said that he could not even break an egg, he could not even drink a glass of water, without an act of faith which could not be bolstered up by logic, how much more this was true of almost every other experience we had. And of course, Harman wished to say that his belief in God and in the creation were bolstered by precisely the same argument as Hume's belief in his egg and his glass of water. The French dealt in general propositions, general propositions of the sciences, but the general propositions of the sciences never caught the actual living, palpitating reality of life. If you met a man and wished to know what he was like, the idea of clapping upon him various psychological and sociological generalizations gleaned from the works of Montesquieu or of Condillac would teach you nothing. The only way in which you discovered what human beings were like was by speaking to them, by communicating with them. Communication meant an actual meeting of two human beings, and by watching the man's face and by watching the contortions of his body and his gestures, by hearing his words and in many other ways which you could not afterwards analyze, you became convinced a datum was presented to. You knew to whom it was that you were talking. Communication was established. The attempt to analyze this communication into scientific general propositions would of necessity fail. General propositions were baskets of an extremely crude kind. They were concepts and categories which differentiated that which was common to a great many things. Common to many men of different sorts, common to many things of different sorts, common to various ages. What they left out of necessity, because they were general, was that which was unique, that which was particular, that which was the specific property of this particular man or this particular thing. And that alone was of interest to, according to Harman. If you wished to read a book, you were not interested in what this book had in common with many other books. If you looked at the picture, you didn't wish to know what principles had gone to the making of this picture, which had also gone to the making of a thousand other pictures in a thousand other ages by a thousand different painters. You wished to react directly to the specific message, if you like, to the specific reality, which looking at this picture, reading this particular book, speaking to this man, praying to this God, would in fact convey to you. Therefore, he drew from this a kind of Bergsonian conclusion, namely, that there was a flow of life that the attempt to cut this flow into segments, in some sense, killed it. That the sciences are very well for their own purposes. If you wished to discover about 
um, how to grow plants, and even then not always correctly. If you wish to know about some kind of general principles about the general properties of bodies in general, whether physical or chemical, if you wish to know about what climates would assist, what kind of growths to develop in them and so forth, no doubt the sciences are very well. But this is not what men ultimately sought. If you ask yourself, what were men after? What did men really want? What men wanted was not at all what Voltaire supposed they wanted. Voltaire thought that they wanted happiness. Voltaire thought they wanted contentment. Voltaire thought that they wanted peace, but this was not true. What men wanted was for all their faculties to play in the richest and most violent possible fashion. What men wanted was to create. What men wanted was to make. And if this making led to clashes, if it led to wars, if it led to struggles, then this was part of the human lot. A man who had been put in a Voltairean garden, pared and pruned, as it were, who had been brought up by some wise philosopher in knowledge of physics and the knowledge of chemistry and the knowledge of mathematics and in knowledge of all the sciences which the encyclopedists had recommended, such a man would in fact be a form of death in life. The sciences, if they were applied to human society, would lead to a kind of fearful bureaucratization, he thought. For him, scientists, bureaucrats, persons who made things tidy, every form, smooth Lutheran clergyman, deists, everybody who wanted to put things in boxes, everybody who wished to assimilate one thing to another, who wished to prove, for example, that creation was really the same as obtaining of certain data which nature provides and the rearrangement in certain pleasing patterns. Um, whereas, of course, for Haman, creation was the most ineffable, indescribable, unanalyzable personal act by which a human being in some way laid his stamp upon nature, allowed his will to soar, spoke his word, uttered that which was within him and which would not brook any kind of um, obstacle. And therefore, to him, the whole of the Enlightenment doctrine appeared to kill that which was living in human beings, appeared to substitute for the creative energies of man and for the whole rich world of the senses, without which it is impossible for human beings to live, to eat, to drink, to be merry, to meet other people, to indulge in the thousand and one acts without which people wither and die. That the Enlightenment on the whole laid no stress on that. That the human being as painted by Enlightenment thinkers was an artificial kind of, not economic man, but maybe some kind of toy, some kind of lifeless model which had no relation to the kind of human beings whom Haman met and wished to associate with every day in his life. Uh, Goethe says much the same thing about Mendelssohn. He says Mendelssohn treats beauty as entomologists treat butterflies. He catches the poor animal and he pins it down and as its exquisite colors drop off, there it lies, a lifeless dead corpse under the pin. This is aesthetics. This is a very typical reaction, so to speak, on the part of the youthful romantic Goethe of the 1770s under the influence of Harman against the tendency on the part of the French to generalize, to classify, to pin down, to arrange in albums, to try and produce some kind of rational ordering of human experience, leaving out, as it was supposed to be, the élan vital, the flow, the individuality, the create desires to create, the desire even to struggle, the, the, that in human beings which produced between people of different views, perhaps what might be called a creative clash of opinion, instead of that dead harmony and peace, which according to Harman and his followers, the French were after. That, I think, is how Harman began. Let me give you some typical quotations and you will see the kind of thing. The bliss of the human soul, says Harman, is not at all what Voltaire seems to think, namely happiness. The bliss of the human soul is rooted in the untrammeled realization of its powers. 
As man is made in God's image, so is the body a picture of the soul. This is quite an interesting view. The body is a picture of the soul because when you meet a human being and you say, what is he like? You judge by his face. You judge by his body. And the idea that there is a soul and a body which can be uh, dissected, that there is a spirit and flesh which are different, that the body is one thing, but there is something inside the man, a kind of ghost palpitating inside this machine, which is quite different from, in fact, what the man is in his totality, in his unity, is a typical dissecting French view. What is this reason with its universality, infallibility, overweeningness, certainty, self-evidence, and it is a stuffed dummy which the howling superstition of unreason has endowed with divine attributes. The Abbe Dupont, at the beginning of the 18th century, said, what one has felt and thought in, in, in one language, one can express with equal elegance in any other. This to Harman was absolute madness. Language is that with which we express ourselves. There is no such thing as thought on the one hand and language on the other. Language is not a glove which can be put in our thought. When we think, we think in symbols, we think in words. And therefore all translation is in principle impossible. Those who think, think in particular symbols, and these symbols are the ones which strike upon the senses and imagination of the people to whom we speak. Approximations may be made in other languages. But if you really wish to enter into contact with a human being, if you really wish to understand what they think, what they feel, and what they are, then you must understand every gesture, you must understand every nuance, you must watch their eyes, you must observe the movement of their lips, you must hear their words, you must understand their handwriting, and then you come to direct acquaintance with the actual sources of life. Anything less than that, the attempt to translate his language into another language, to classify all his various movements by some anatomical or physiognomical means, to try and put him into a box with a lot of other people and produce a learned volume which will, as it were, simply classify him as one of a species, one of a type. That is the way to miss all knowledge. That is the way to kill. That is the way to apply concepts and categories, hollow baskets, to the palpitating, unique, asymmetrical, um, unclassifiable flesh of living human experience. This is, roughly speaking, the doctrine of Harman. And that is the doctrine which he bequeathed to his followers. To abolish caprice and fancy in the arts, he said, is to be like an assassin plotting against the arts' life and honor. Passion, that is what art possesses. Passion which cannot be described and cannot be classified. That is what Moses Mendelssohn, that aesthetic Moses, Moses aesthetic lawgiver, he says, wants to circumcise. He wants to circumcise all these aesthetic commandments. Thou shalt not assail this, thou shalt not taste that. In a free state, he says, where the leaves from the divine book of the divine Shakespeare blow about in all the tempests of time, in a free state, how dare a man do this? Goethe said about him, in order to achieve the impossible, he stretches his hand to all the elements. All that a man undertakes must spring from his united powers. All separation is to be rejected. I must, I think, stop at this point. And my next lecture, I propose to go on with the influence of Harman upon the German Romantics and the very violent impact which they thereupon made upon the body of the French Enlightened establishment.